the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Welcome to TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, March 4th, 2022. Now, of course, as has been in the news everywhere now for well over a week, uh, we have a situation in Ukraine where Russia is just not respecting boundaries. Um, now, as you may know, I myself am not an international expert. I do my best to keep informed, um, but I do know someone who's been, as Johnny Cash once sang, everywhere. Or at least so it would seem. Um, I would like to bring on at this time Greg Pallast, who is known for his investigative uh, journalism and reports for The Guardian, Democracy Now!, also New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Greg, welcome to TMI. Glad to be with you again, Aldous. Uh, definitely glad to have you back. Now, as I was saying, uh, uh, Putin doesn't respect boundaries. Well, yeah, um, you know, like uh, you learn that in elementary school, you know, respect boundaries. You know, don't don't steal your reach over and steal your friend's candy or girlfriend. Right. Um, yeah. So it is. You know, uh, it's violent and it's horrible um, and there's yes. no excuse. Uh, what we have to do is now get some facts to get some information. And I should also note that I've been getting reports. We have three members of our team there, uh, Nick uh, Parapolitsa, who is um, who is Ukrainian, he's in. Uh, he uh, is reporting to us and sending us films and information from Kharkiv, which is the uh, the absolute center of the fight. That's that's the second, the second largest, largest city there in Ukraine. In Ukraine in, yeah. in the east. So he's been sending me film and reports. Uh, we also have um, Margarita Ivanova, who is uh, going to be covering the protests in Moscow and. And Yuri Kirshner. So um, let me uh, hats off. Well, I never take my hat off, but uh, <laughs> hats know. on to uh, the palace investigative team. I'm not on the front lines. They are. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we have to, I want to make, explain that in effect, there are two wars going on here. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's, there's the war over the Eastern Ukraine, uh, which Russia claims is Russia. Right. And there's the war over Kiev and the rest of Ukraine. They're, they're actually incredibly different. And it's important we understand this distinction mm -hmm. uh, from which I'm getting. Is number, uh, and by the way, the, the, just so you know, the latest, let me give you the latest war report, because I know that's what people want. But so 
Um, we, I, uh, Nick, in um, our man in Kharkiv, uh, he said, you know, the three days ago when he was there, uh, he actually sent us video of literally Russian troops walking under his window, walking into the city under his window. Wow. The next tape we get is of a Russian convoy of armored vehicles and, and, and troop vehicles, which are just destroyed. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's blood and shrapnel everywhere, uh, these Russians. So what happened is that the Russians came into the city and effectively got trapped there. So a lot of the Russians were caught, they were slaughtered, they were driven out of the city. Sunday, there was almost no conflict uh, in, in the Kharkiv area because the Russians thought, well, you move into a city with your tanks and your weapons and they, and that's it. But they didn't realize how difficult urban warfare is and they got pushed back and out. Now I assume it's out of some type of Putin's frustration that he didn't just have his blitzkrieg didn't blitz. Um, they've been shelling the city uh, heavily and that's oh. killing civilians, of course. And, and well, yes, yeah, I, I mean, People, you start that. Uh, you, know, you start bringing out the artillery. There's just no way to completely differentiate between, right. say, well, and they don't want and to. You know, I mean, you can. You know, uh, if you're, you know, real military figures out how to uh, um, attack soldiers. But of course, we have to raise the question: like, why is Putin attacking Ukrainian soldiers? Mm -hmm. uh, so, in, in the Ukraine now, understand. There's now. Let me go back to the war. So, to the two wars, as I say. First, there's the Donbass, which is the west of Ukraine. And that, and if you can include in that the Crimea. Right. Excuse me, not the west, the east, the far east. Right. Now, the truth is, whether we like it or not, that's a Russian territory. It's been Russia. It is filled with Russians. It, the overwhelming pop, um, the population is overwhelmingly not only Russian speaking, but then this is very important. Russian Orthodox following the Patriarch of Moscow. Oh. There's been very, very little discussion of a key driver of this violence, which is a religious difference. Right. Right. Now, we want to replay the Cold War that it's, you know, the Russians or we even have reporters talking about the Soviets, you know, <laughs> the Russians, you know, the Russian bear versus the freedom loving Americans. Forget all that. It's not the replay of the Cold War. It's a replay of the Crusades oh, and it's gotcha. a replay of the of the of the schism in the church of, um, you know, hundreds of uh, centuries long splits in the church. Right. And some more new. So most people in the in the East are Russian speakers, Russian Orthodox, Russian ethnics, and they've always been part of Russia. In fact, they have distant, dif um, distant in-laws, very distant. I barely know them. Um, who are in the Donbass, uh, and uh, they consider themselves Russian. Uh, Ukrainians have not been in the Donbass and, and uh, Crimea for eight years, remember. Uh, it's been basically under Russian control. Right, right. 14,000 people have died in that Eastern conflict. So that, and understand when I say it's always been part of Russia, the Crimea and Donbass were not, given to Ukraine, did not end up in Ukraine until 1954, when in a fight uh, between Khrushchev, who had just taken over when Stalin died, uh, mm -hmm. Khrushchev was the premier of the party. Right. And there's the, but the, there's also a Russian government head, which is the prime minister, which was uh, Georgi Melenkov. Mm -hmm. 
So you had this fight between Khrushchev and Melikov, and Khrushchev simply seized part of Melikov's space in Crimea and the Donbass and gave it to his buddy in the Ukraine. So it's an internal Politburo fight that resulted in these Russians being lopped off and given to Ukraine. So now those Russians want to go back to Russia. So that, that's why the, the vote in Crimea, many people know Greg Palace, know me. And if you've read my books, Best Democracy Money Can Buy or see me on Democracy Now or BBC, whatever, uh, you know, I usually specialize in vote theft and voting mm-hmm. around the world, not just America. Mm-hmm. There's no question that the people of Crimea voted to be part of Russia. Part of it is that their uh, pensions, the, these are mostly uh, retired naval people because that's the big base at Sebastopol. Uh, their pensions went up 500% because they're part of Russia instead of Ukraine, which pays this this paltry uh, equivalent of about $80 a month pensions. So people really did want the, the, the Russians want to go back to Russia. Now that's one battle, right? Putin won that war last week or two weeks ago, right? That is Ukraine. You could have stopped right there. Effectively, the Ukraine's never controlled the Donbass, has not been in Crimea for eight years. Uh, Putin's rolling tanks into the eastern Ukraine um, is was simply confirming a reality on the ground. And frankly, what the people of that area want, they're Russians who want to be part of Russia. Then so he wins the war, but then for the real battle starts. And and I have to say, I've talked to some experts and we're all kind of confused as to why he's continuing the war after he's won Uh, hubris. There may be the only other thing I can bring into it. And and again, I I can't reach into the mind uh, of a dictator. Right. I try not to. But um, the um, and I call and by the way, I use the term advisedly when you when you kill poison and, and imprison your opponents, that makes you a dictator. So uh, I can't reach into Putin's mind, but I do know that he does have a base. Even dictators have to run for reelection. You know, they need that one hundred and two percent vote. Right. Yeah. And, and, and of course, in Russia, when you lose your popularity, you can uh, remember that one way that uh, as you know, Often you have a change of government through a bullet. Putin has to be very careful. And his big base is with the, um, the Orthodox Church and the Patriarch Kirill. Kirill, the Patriarch out of Moscow, was reasonably concerned that thousands of his, of his uh, co-religionists, his followers, were being slaughtered in the Donbass this, with this endless artillery shelling from both sides, 14,000 people died, including 3,000 civilians, almost all of them Russian uh, ethnics. So he had a real concern about protecting his uh, people. But he also has a second concern, which could concern us and seems to concern Putin. Uh, Kirill was also the the patriarch for Kiev. Then uh, Kiev split off and created its own patriarchate. So it has its own patriarch in Kiev. By the way, the third uh, big religion there is uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, which is kind of aligning with the Ukrainian church right. on this issue. So you got this really a medieval conflict going on, and we have to understand that. There is no grounds. I'm a big fan of, of elections and self-determination. If the Russians want to go back to Russia in the east, and, and I should also say there's a split within the Ukrainian community. That is young people who are not very religious and don't follow these things. They're more than happy to give up the Donbass and, and Crimea. It was never really part of their country or their thinking. 
Uh, Ukraine's become a high tech center. It's the reason why I have two Ukrainians on our staff is that they're tech experts. They handle our um, computers and our design work, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, so young people are, are living in this, uh, in places like Lviv in the West are, are more than happy to give up, you know, this, the, the Russians who are hanging out on the Eastern edge. Right. Uh, right. Older Ukrainians are not so happy. Uh, you know, they see this as a patri- uh, issue of patriotism versus their former Russian occupiers. So there's a, a bit of a split. We'll see that might play out. The reason I bring that up might play out in any terms that are going to be agreed upon if we can get to an agreement. So in the mean, so in a way, it was easy for the Russians to take back old Russia, uh, the Donbass and Crimea. Right. But what they're finding is that they are now running into Ukrainians who now uh, are fighting, as far as they're concerned, for their country, and they're ready to give up their lives. I haven't heard a Ukrainian yet who hasn't told me, I will die for this. And that's why uh, the the Russians uh, cannot make any progress there. Um, I'll add one other thing in in this filibuster of mine, (laughs) which is um, I did speak to um, a top War of what's called future warfare integration expert in in the for the the U.S. military. I I don't want to give out his name at this moment because I don't know how much I was allowed to say. But he said, "Look, Mm -hmm. uh, he was not." uh, uh, He said it's very hard, and the United States itself has learned this lesson in a bloody manner. You can't take cities with tanks. Uh, You can't maneuver within a city with tanks. You can't, uh, and your sold, you know, the turrets of, of tanks uh, can't really reach above a second floor of a building. Uh, the infantry, which follows tanks, can easily be slaughtered. This is what happened. The Russians roll into Kharkiv and they got slaughtered and pushed out. Uh, a lot of people can die. Then they can move to bombardment, which is basically just slaughtering civilians. Right. But it's very hard because people are shocked that the Russians have been unable to take a single city. I'm still trying to find out the fate of Odessa, but my understanding is that not one city has been taken because as I've been told, it's incredibly difficult to do unless the people want you there. You know, like not everyone was in love with Saddam Hussein, so it allowed us to go into Baghdad, but uh, it's pretty much universal um, uh, preparation. You know, people will do anything to stop the Russians from staying in their cities. Right. So that's a status on the city. So, you know, it's, it's a horrid situation, but I wanted to distinguish between that Russian edge, which is always part of Russia. It's gone mm-hmm. back to Russia. Now we might also see one more province added to the uh, Uhansk, Netsk, and uh, Crimea. That would be Kherson which is basically a Russian area. And that would give Russia its entire, the entire East and its bordering areas uh, that border on Russia. But then when, uh, for whatever reasons, whether it's religion, hubris, uh, Napoleonic urges, I don't know what's motivating Putin, but he has caused this second war, which um, he is losing. Um, You know, uh, and that's uh, unfortunately while he's in the process of losing, he's in the process of killing. And that's a big problem. Okay. Well, all right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I want to say, if you want this kind of uh, in-depth analysis of current events, make sure to keep an eye on gregpalast.com. 
That is where you'll find Greg's uh, reports regularly filed by himself and other journalists that work with him, his team. Uh, so again, gregpalace.com. Keep an eye on that because this is honestly, Greg, one of the things, one of the reasons why I'm having you on right now is I know that you recently talked about how um, there are some of the sanctions that we have put elsewhere in the world that if we would simply lift could solve a good bit of this. Yeah. So the question is, what do we do about Ukraine? I mean, obviously the Ukrainians would like weapons and ammunition and, and internet and uh, et cetera. Um, uh, it's amazing that the Russians, by the way, have knocked, not knocked out the power of the internet, um, you know, which just shows an extraordinary weakness on their part. But the real question is what, what's Putin, what does Putin really care about in the end besides staying in power? Uh, oil, 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 yeah. oil, oil. It always comes out to you and say, wait, the Ukraine doesn't have a lot of oil. It's not like he's invading Baghdad here. Um, the answer is, and it's not about even the pipeline. What it is, um, this mayhem has been a profit center for Putin. That is 40 percent, 43 percent for last count of the Russian budget was provided by oil revenues and oil royalties, oil and gas. 43% of the entire federal budget, you know, all the social security, every program and military, et cetera. So Russia lives and dies literally on its oil revenues. And, and this mayhem has caused the price of oil to hit a hundred bucks a barrel. Now, what that means to Putin if versus um, $50 a barrel, uh, which also raises the price of gas. So his revenues are increasing about a half he has a windfall, war windfall of about a half a billion dollars a day. So he's making money literally as long as he keeps the mayhem going. Um, and now the question is, so what can we do to bring down the price of oil to bring, cause that's going to bring Putin to his knees. It's amazing. He's a powerful man at a hundred bucks a barrel. He's pretty weak at 30 bucks a barrel. You know, uh, last year he was devastated and you didn't hear much from the guy. Mm -hmm. um, and when oil was down uh, in, you know, for one day, it was actually a negative uh, <laughs> uh, price in the world market. People didn't know what, where to put the oil because no one was, you know, the, the world was shut down. Right, right. So how do we do this? So to, to your question about other embargoes, we have been embargoing the nation with the largest supply of oil on the planet, Venezuela. No one's talking about this. It's like it fell off the radar. What Putin is doing in Ukraine is cruel and horrific. And what we are doing in Venezuela is cruel and horrific. We have embargoed and laid siege to and, and basically surrounded, blockaded Venezuela so that very little of its oil can get out. Now, this this is a country which has a two million barrel a day OPEC allotment, and we're getting almost none of it. Wow. Two million barrels a day now. And they have a tremendous gas reserve. So if the Germans are afraid that Putin will cut off their pipe, well, stop cutting off Venezuela's pipe because it's, it's not only the United States, it's the European Union and Britain, which are saying we won't take Venezuelan oil. You know, we won't take Venezuelan oil and even more. We won't let Venezuela pump the oil because what we're doing is by the embargo has stopped them from getting the parts and equipment uh, that they need to keep their oil industry running, which is quite complex because it's based on heavy oil. So it's very difficult to 
with, you know, without the parts, the expertise and the funding, uh, you know, the, and for example, we've we've bought the Koch brothers. Actually, they have a refinery in the Gulf Coast of Texas. They are the number one customer. They were the number one customer of Venezuela. We took the oil that Venezuela sent us to the Koch brothers refinery and the U.S. Treasury seized all the money so that if Venezuela sells oil, they can't get the money. So obviously they're not going to sell it to us or to Europe because they can't get the money. So their oil supplies, their oil production is extremely limited. People are literally starving and they don't have medicine to fight COVID. It's cruel. It's horrible. It's, it's if, if Putin were doing this in Ukraine now, they're trying to block Ukraine. Uh, you know, we'd be screaming and hollering, but yet we're doing it to Venezuela. And who's suffering from it? We are because because it's, we're knocking, uh, you know, more than a million barrels a day out of the world market. If we got our if we said, OK, Vlad, we're going to make you a deal. If you, Putin, will recognize the elected government of Ukraine, we will recognize the elected government of Venezuela. And that's our problem. This is a leftover Trump disaster. Trump cut off Venezuela, ordered the embargo, ordered the blockade. And all why? Well, number one, they say, well, Venezuela is not really a democratic nation. So instead, we're getting our oil and gas from the democratic nation of Saudi Arabia, <laughs> from the democratic nation. By the way, our biggest source of imports into the West is Russia. So uh, the great democracies, we'd rather get our oil and gas from our China, uh, excuse me, from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Russia, Kazakhstan, where I've been uh, and uh, another police state. These are the great democracies instead of Venezuela. And let me tell you, I've been in Venezuela. I covered Venezuela for BBC television and The Guardian. I got to know not only the, the presidents. I knew uh, Hugo Chavez very well. I also know the current president, uh, Nicolas Maduro, and I got to know and, and in fact became quite friendly with several of the opposition figures. But I have to tell you, whether we like it or not, Maduro was fairly elected, just as I said, the, in the Crimea, you know, the, the Russians voted to rejoin Russia. We have to accept that. We also have to accept that the Venezuelan people chose Maduro. Now, I'm going to tell you, I know Maduro. He's not necessarily my cup of tea. I think he's over his head as a leader. I think he's screwing this all up. But it's I'm not a Venezuelan voter. The Venezuelans have chosen him. And the reason why is instead of like reasonable and rational uh, opposition leaders, and there are some like Julio Borges, I'm not campaigning for him. I'm just saying he's a reasonable and rational guy. Fair enough. Um, is we have the Trump and now Biden, of all people, have been re recognizing a guy named Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. Now, let me tell you how really weird that is. Juan Guaido has basically lived his life in Washington, D.C. until last uh, un until Trump came in. He didn't even get close to Venezuela. He's also a very rich white guy working for uh, think tanks. And, and white is an important discussion here because for 400 years, white people, what they called themselves the Spaniards, <laughs> ran Venezuela, took all its money, and most people got nothing. Here yeah. they're sitting on a gigantic, the world's largest reserve of oil, according to, uh, to OPEC. And yet the people got nothing. Hugo Chavez came in, the first non-white head of state, as he says, I'm Negro e Indio, I'm, <laughs> I'm black and Indian, and they didn't like it. 
and they hate it. And they want to force Venezuela to accept this guy, Guaido. Now, understand, Guaido didn't even it's not like he was he can claim, oh, they stole the election from me. Guaido never ran for president. He didn't run for president. And, he's, and yeah. yet the U.S., the U.S. and the European Union and the U.K. have all recognized Guaido as the president. When Venezuela send, sells oil, we literally give it to this guy, Guaido. Um, imagine. If in California, because we're an oil state in California mm-hmm. and we sold our oil to uh, Japan or wherever. Um, or back to uh, Ohio and we were told, no, you can't send any money to California. Forget it. Uh, and by the way, we're not going to let you have food or medicine. We're going to cut you off. Uh, you know, uh, so if we end the embargo of Venezuela, we'll crash the price of oil. How much? I can only guess, but uh, we do know that um, I would figure about 20 bucks a barrel. I've been in this, I've, you know, I'm an economist by training. I've done energy a long time. It would probably be at least $20 a barrel. You might say, well, what's the big deal? That's a big, really big deal to Vlad Putin. I'll tell you that right now. Well, yeah. And, um, and also the fact that it won't just be a one-time bump down. If we can reach a peace agreement with Venezuela, and after all, an embargo is an act of war. If we can re- have peace with our neighbor to the south and accept their elected government, um, I think that uh, that that would cut off Putin at the knees. He's a very powerful man when oil's at 100 bucks a barrel. At 60, he doesn't have such a big mouth, let me tell you. Understood. And, you know, the other thing, Greg, is that uh, I'm, I'm right up there with you when I want people to understand that the word embargo is this nice sounding word, or at least not maybe not nice sounding, but it's a much more pleasant sounding word than economic warfare. So what or a really- siege. It's a siege. Right. You know, like this is it's a it's a medieval method. Right. A siege of a nation where you literally stop medicine and food and you don't give them their own money. You know that Britain took 10 billion dollars of gold bullion, which was sitting in the Bank of England that belonged to Venezuela. And they literally seized it and gave it to this guy, Guaido. This is insane. You know, when Hugo Chavez had the gold bricks removed from the Federal Reserve in New York and Fort Knox, where Venezuela's gold reserves were kept, and he demanded that they be sent back to Caracas. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, that's crazy stuff. Boy, he made a mistake by leaving his gold bullion in, in Britain. Hmm. So it wasn't crazy. We did seize that nation's that nation's assets. Then we say, oh, look how terrible their economy is. Well, wait a minute. You just stole all their money. You, you crushed their oil industry. And, and now we're paying the price, literally paying the price in Ukraine and literally paying the price at the pump. We got to stop this war in Venezuela. And no one's talking about it. So basically, it, it could easily. Well, I tried to. It could easily be said then that the economic siege and warfare that we've been waging on Venezuela, us and the EU and Great Britain altogether, um, essentially has helped cause the mo- a good bit of motivation for uh, what Putin's now doing in Ukraine. Yeah, we're funding. Yeah. In effect, we're funding his war by keeping uh, by by keeping all this oil and gas off the market. Venezuela has enough gas if you liquefy it and they liquefy it in Trinidad. Liquefy that gas. You don't need Nord Stream 2 and you don't need Nord Stream 1. You know, let's not forget Nord Stream 2 may have been shut off, 
But Nord Stream 1 is bringing 1.9 trillion cubic feet of gas into Germany every day from Russia. So, the, you know, the Russians are laughing at some of these sanctions. What, the, what his, the oligarchs won't be able to um, uh, get tickets to Hamilton? They're getting richer than Croesus with this, with this massive, massive windfall from oil. We have to shut off the wind machine so that Trump, uh, well, Trump, <laughs> the, the Trump of Russia... <laughs> the Trump of Russia, uh, you know, his idea of a spending spree is rolling tanks. And it's amazing what will happen when the oil money gets shut off. Well, half a billion dollars a day of profit will buy you a good bit of war. Yeah. So, um, Greg Palast, again, thank you so much. I did want to add, add one other thing. As you mentioned, the, the two wars involved, the first one being the making sure that the ethnically Russian parts of Ukraine were essentially rejoined to Russia. That being the one part, the one part of that might be part of at least one of the things that might wind up being hopefully in some sort of treaty to end this thing. Uh, that that uh, Putin might insist on is the unblocking of the canal that supplies fresh water to uh, uh, Crimea, because that got blocked after the 2014, uh, the 2014 annexation. And apparently Crimea is almost like a desert now, thanks to climate change, of course, but also the fact that they don't have the fresh water flowing in. Well, uh, Putin did. Um, 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 Putin did build a bridge. Uh, so they can, uh, you know, there's ways for them to actually get that water. But yeah, obviously, there's plenty of grounds for uh, an agreement to be reached. You know, while it'd be very difficult for Zelensky, he might have to sign a deal and then resign to say, okay, you can, we'll recognize Crimea and the Donbass as Russia, because it is, as long as, as Russia and Putin recognize Ukraine as Ukraine. Right. And, and, stop, and so, I mean, obviously, you know, you and I can say, well, this is a very good grounds. There's, a, there's something that these guys can trade to, to lead to peace. Zelensky, while as being Jewish, uh, doesn't have a, a dog in the fight between these, uh, the, the religious schism within the Orthodox right. Church. But he also has his voters. And uh, like I say, the older people, not the younger people, the older people will scream bloody murder if he officially recognizes the, the Russian area is going back to Russia. Um, younger people are not so attached to it because it hasn't been really been effectively. It hasn't been part of Ukraine for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, yeah, so there's there are definitely grounds. Uh, to end this conflict. And let's remember that there were a lot of Russian ethnics killed in the past eight years. It's a war that we haven't discussed. And it's mostly been the Russian ethics who, who've bled in that war. But, um, you know, in a way it was resolved by Putin's rolling tanks into the Donbass. And obviously that protects Crimea. If you can look at a map, Crimea is a peninsula that's east of the eastern uh, provinces of Ukraine. And, you know, so again, there's, there's good grounds for peace. There's no good grounds for war. And uh, hopefully the world will, um, will say there is, there are grounds it, in a way you almost have to impose this type of peace on the parties because it's very difficult for the, for any Ukrainian leader to say you can have the East, right? It has to be imposed on them. But again, when we do that, let's let's include in the peace agreement peace with Venezuela. Oh, yes, that makes perfect sense to me. Greg Palast, thank you again for joining me as a 
I attempt on a weekly basis to be the cure for the common media, and you, sir, are certainly the uncommon media. I appreciate very much the job you and your team do. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to keep up with Greg Palast and what his team's doing, and I highly recommend you do, check out gregpalast.com. Look for him on your on his on your bookshelves, and uh, you know you can check him out occasionally on Democracy Now, I believe, and a few other spots. Yes. So, yes. Greg, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media, airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central, podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Love some more. Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Thoughts for five to ten years, and to writing them down. Well, 
wars come and go. What remains are only the values of culture. there is revolutionary love. Love of comrades fighting for the people and love of people. Not an abstract people, but people one meets and works with. When Che Guevara talked of love being at the center of revolutionary endeavor, he meant both. For people like Che or George Jackson or Malcolm X, love was the prime mover of their struggle, and love cost them their lives. Love coupled with immense pride. TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, our good friend there, uh, Greg Palast of gregpalast.com, laid out a lot of motivating factors for um, Mr. Putin to be invading Ukraine at this time, but there were a few that I wanted to go over that weren't touched upon in that interview. 
So the first thing to know is that clearly Vladimir Putin meant this to be, as Greg Pellis put it, a blitzkrieg, a fast, furious, and short invasion. Now, the reason why that's important to know is because it goes into the timing of it. You see, the United Nations Security Council um, has a rotating presidency. Every month, a different nation in the United Nations Security Council has the presidency. And wouldn't you know, February of 2022, the month that Putin decided to launch this attack, it was Russia's turn to be the president of the United Nations Security Council, which allowed him through his diplomat at the uh, United Nations to veto any action against Russia by the United Nations Security Council. That was not an advantage he was going to have for many, many more months. Again, uh, I'm not sure how often he would come up, but it would be a while until Russia was back in that seat. So first of all, that's partly why the timing. Uh, The second thing to know is that um, now Russia did annex the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine back in 2014, right? This is uh, fairly common knowledge, but no, if you didn't know, now you do. Now, in that time, uh, since that time, I should say, Ukraine, of course, didn't appreciate this very much. And they knew there was one major weakness the Crimean Peninsula had that the rest of Ukraine really didn't suffer from nearly as much. The Crimean Peninsula had virtually no freshwater supply, except for a canal that siphoned some fresh water off of one of the main rivers that flows out of Kiev and down into the Black Sea. Now, the Ukrainians, after Russia took over Crimea, decided they were going to uh, hurt the uh, peninsula the one way they knew they could and blocked the canal. They poured cement into the uh, source end of it and stopped it from flowing, which had an effect that, uh, well, you might be able to predict. Basically, the Crimean Peninsula dried up um, between the effect of that canal uh, being blocked and then uh, subsequently some of the driest and hottest years they've experienced there uh, since, thanks to your good old friend global warming. Um, the Crimean Peninsula is now virtually a desert, which has been horrific for those Russians um, and you know Russian ethnic Ukrainians living in Crimea. Um, It's just been a terrible thing. Now, in the meantime, as uh, Mr. Palace mentioned, uh, Russia has built a bridge from mainland Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, but um, that's still not a good way to get fresh water supply over there. There, There's only so much they can do. And so I would expect that one motivator amongst many uh, for invading uh, Ukraine is to um, apply pressure and uh, see if at the very least, at the end of the day, they can't get uh, Ukraine to agree to having the canal unblocked. Now, the two ways Ukraine could agree is if Ukraine puts up sufficient uh, fight against Russia, um, but in some sort of treaty arrangement or whatnot, they agree to unblock the canal and stop blocking it from in the future. Um, So there would be that. But I'm pretty sure what Vladimir Putin had in mind was to just take over Ukraine entirely. And then it's not up to Ukraine to sign any kind of a treaty saying they're going to do that. The Russia would just directly remove the blockage and get the canal flowing on their own once they, you know, own the entire country. Now, that's one thing. 
there is several, there is at least one other very significant factor um, playing into this. Well, two. Okay. So the first one is this. Um, Russia, all throughout Putin's reign and, and even just a little bit before it, has had negative population growth. What that means specifically is that there have been more deaths than births every year, every year in Russia, which has the effect of taking Russia's military age population, if you will, and dwindling it every year, the amount of people who are even able to serve in a military fashion in Russia dwindles, which means every moment in time is the last moment in time for the foreseeable future that Russia is going to have as much military might as it does that day. So time was a wasting. As far as Vladimir is concerned, he didn't have much time to waste. The longer he waited, the smaller the potential pool of people to draw upon for any kind of military maneuver, right? So he knew he had to act soon, right there. So that's pressure. And then the third thing, which is something that could have been put off for a little bit of time, perhaps, is this one. Um, now, throughout history, Russia has a problem, has had a problem of geography. Now, Nowadays, you might be like, oh, come on, all this in this day of aerial warfare and, and cyber attacks. What does geography matter? Let me tell you something. If you think geography doesn't matter, you just ask any infantryman. You just ask anybody piloting a tank. You just ask anybody who is fighting on the ground because ground warfare is still a thing. Geography matters. And Russia's geography sucks for ground combat. The only thing that they've historically had an advantage on with ground combat is the fact that at least twice now, people have come at them in ground combat during the winter, which is the worst time to be doing anything in the area, which, by the way, has been one of the points that has uh, kind of dumbfounded a few folks. Napoleon came at Russia when it was cold, and when winter fell, it just decimated Napoleon's troops. Hitler? came at Russia and uh, on the brink of winter and when winter fell, decimated uh, Germany's uh, forces. So Hitler and Napoleon both found out winter is Russia's friend defensively, but it's also Ukraine's friend defensively because again, running supply lines in the winter in that region of the world, really difficult to do. So it's kind of been baffling people why he would uh, start in winter. But that's where we come back to the United Nations thing. February 2022. He knew he had the United Nations Security Council presidency to play with. He kind of had to make his maneuver. Plus, late winter, he's was probably hoping for maybe a little bit better weather than, say, December or January. In any case, the point is this. Those are the two forces... Well, so sorry, those are the two times where you could say, well, wow, you know, Russia couldn't be invaded by uh, Napoleon or Hitler. So I guess they're fine. No, 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 no. Really, winter was about the only thing stopping them. They as soon as you can get past the relatively narrow gap in the east of Germany between the Baltic Sea and the mountains, You've got nothing but flat, broad plain that you can just run wild in. If you capture 
or let's just say you have ter- you hold territory in that area, which nowadays we generally call Poland. So if you're Poland and you belong to a non-Russian force, that means you've got this huge border that's very difficult to defend, this huge flat plain border. But if Poland is yours and you're Russia, well, now you're at the other end where things are narrowing up. You've got a much smaller flat plain border to defend. On your, uh, on your Western front. And if you can go past Poland and take a little bit of that east part of, of Germany, that area, then you've really got a highly defensible border because you've bottlenecked it. So, again, what we're looking at here is geographically, he was feeling, Putin, I should say, was feeling extremely uh, open to attack, and he was fearing attack, whether it's legitimately or not, by NATO and the EU. He saw NATO encroaching close to him. He didn't like it. So, first of all, he had that making him uneasy. The geography that went against him, so long as Ukraine and Poland and all those territories were giving him this gigantic, wide-open western border on Russia— where it would be so easy to just roll forces through geographically. He didn't like that. So he needed to see if he could control that and try to get closer to that choke point. Uh, well in the west, uh, well to the west of, uh, of Russia's border. Right. So he had that originally to keep in mind. He also had to keep in mind his military uh, age forces were dwindling every day, just by sheer natural attrition. And then He had to think, well, I'm going to have the United Nations Security Council presidency to play with February 2022. Now, combine all of that with the fact that he wanted the uh, Crimean Peninsula that he had taken over in uh, 2014 to have a fresh water supply restored. And that was totally up to Ukraine, whether or not that uh, that was going to happen. And the fact that he had, as uh, Greg Pallast completely went through, he had two uh, provinces of Ukraine right on Russia's border vote and legitimately vote to become Russian. There was an excuse that he decided he was going to use to further all these other goals we're talking about. He's like, okay, well, I can say that, hey, these two areas of Ukraine have invited me in. But he knew that wasn't going to be sufficient. He wouldn't be able to restore Crimea's water without one one way or the other forcing uh, Kiev, you know, the, the Ukrainian capital, to uh, to knuckle under and unblock that canal. And he would much, much rather just roll through and, and claim Ukraine as his so he could tighten up his western border and be much less susceptible to ground attack, he could he could do have that border under a lot more control if it was a much smaller flat plain border. Um, and then, of course, as uh, Mr. Palace mentioned, there was of the uh, religious uh, backing. Most of Mr. Putin's strongest base is uh, Russian Orthodox, and the Russian Orthodox Church was not happy that Ukraine had pulled away and, and put up its own little, uh, put up its own little version of Russian Orthodoxy, highly, um, highly uh, uh, associated with the Greek Orthodox church. No, it didn't like that at all. So he had the backing of the biggest 
political bloc of his, the Russian Orthodox folks, to go and take Ukraine. So all of this put together, and you had a big temptation on Mr. Putin. Now, I'm not saying that I ever expected somebody with the uh, (laughs) moral character of Vladimir Putin to resist anything. So calling it a temptation, I guess, is a bit rich. But uh, those are the motivations. And now here we are. Um, Of course, the other motivation that was mentioned was that in um, doing this, he would drive the price of oil and gas, natural gas, sky high, and he would make half a billion dollars a day windfall by doing so. So, basically, we're looking at a situation right now where, as Greg Palace mentioned, if we were to stop our embargo of Venezuela and drive the price of gas uh, and oil back down. So it's like from going from $100 a barrel a day, like it is right now uh, to $60 a barrel roughly. Um, And remember, Greg Palast is an economist. He estimates that's roughly where it would land uh, if we were to allow Venezuela to pump their, uh, their limit via OPEC. Um, That would, that would really hurt. Putin. At that point, Putin would probably have to stop and try to settle for just having the two uh, Russian-voted provinces in the uh, far east of Crimea, or pardon me, far east of Ukraine, um, continue the, keeping Crimea and maybe, maybe be able to negotiate to get that water block taken out. Honestly, I think that's the best case scenario, and I really hope that we're up for it. I hope we're ready to stop waging financial war against Venezuela. Allow them to uh, get back to at least a, a, a semblance of decent living by stopping punishing them so much. And in turn, basically defang Vladimir Putin. We can do it. That's the way to do it. And I hope we, uh, I hope we have the wherewithal to make it happen. Thank you for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler this week. And to uh, wrap things up, I would like to talk about something besides Ukraine. Um, And in fact, this is something that's kind of hopeful. There is a startup company out there that's looking to drill roughly 12 miles into Earth's crust to tap the energy down there. What kind of energy are you talking about? Well, Geothermal has been a thing for a while, but usually to make geothermal energy work, you need to essentially put it on pretty much on a fault line, somewhere where the crust is really thin and you have access to really hot temperatures that are coming directly from the earth. This can be kind of hazardous, but there are places that make it work. Uh, Iceland, which is extremely volcanic, for example, makes geothermal work very well. However, as it happens, if you drill deep enough, into the earth, it gets to be about 700 degrees, roughly, on average, when you get about 12 miles down. Now, that's not enough to penetrate the crust in most areas. And the startup company is very clear that they will not be drilling too deep enough to penetrate the crust. They just want to drill deep enough to get to this temperature. So if we're talking a thinner crusted area, they won't drill quite as far down. But the idea is to access this 700 degree level where they will be able to superheat water that they send down the channel 
so that they can power steam turbines up top and you can have virtually limitless electrical generation this way with virtually no emissions. This is beautiful stuff. And they're using a technique to do the drilling that uses um, microwave beam radiation combined with like a nitrogen gas that then expels the um, chunks of, of dirt and well, basically the vaporized dirt all the way back up, uh, basically like a big plume out the top when they're drilling. They can do it this way. And that way they don't have to worry about drill bits getting chewed up endlessly the way uh, things happen now. So it's good news. It's a way that we might have limitless clean energy. Just a little bit of hope to close out what's otherwise been a pretty bleak week. But I know people wonder, hey, look, Aldous, how do you see the world clearly enough to do all this? Well, if you want to see the world clearly, first close your eyes. Find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Let all that stuff slough away. It's too much information that they throw at you every day. Then you'll be ready to see the world for how it is. All you will have to do at that point is simply 